The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. First they came for Chuck C. Johnson of Got News. And I said nothing. Because he's kind of a bit of a alt-right prick. Then they came for Milo Yiannopoulos. And I said nothing. Because he's got some serious issues. I got into it with a few times before he got banned from Twitter. And it was like the beehive swarm of trolls just launched on me. Then they came for Alex Jones. And I said nothing. Because he said his dishwasher was being used to spy on him. And Monica Lewinsky was an Israeli spy. And the fluoride in the water was turning the frogs gay. Then they came for Laura Loomer. And I said nothing. Because she likes to get up in people's faces and just make a name for herself. Doing a lot of yelling and screaming and... Then they came for Jesse Kelly, and I have no effing idea why, and neither does he. That's the amazing part. Twitter, which, you know, I understand Twitter is not the real world. I mean, only a fraction of the population actually uses it, but there's some good utilitarian aspects of it. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in, and you can find me on Twitter at Rants Out Loud or even at Adrian Slade Show. I like to use it for news and information. I like to use it because of the fact that a lot of times when a narrative is crafted by the news media because they want to push an agenda that the left is building, we find ways around it by crowdsourcing information, sharing information back and forth online. And so it's actually a useful tool, even though there's a lot of tools on it, (laughs) a lot of trolls and what have you, but... I think it was effective in the 20, uh, you know, the lead up to the 2016 race because during the primaries, Trump definitely had a coalition online pushing for him. We talked about that on the uh, show, the rerun that we played last week of the Gamergate and, and the net and the, you know, the genesis of that. But I think they understood social media played an, uh, an epic role in motivating people for change. And that is why there was such a focus on the beginning of 2018 to purge people from the platforms so that they can then do what they did a month before the midterm elections and constantly push you to register to vote because they're thinking, well, if you're going to register to vote, you're automatically going to vote Democrat. And so there was a heavy, heavy push for that. And so now people that were influential are being removed. I mean, I go down the line, I'm like, think about it. Chuck C. Johnson, you might not know who some of these people are. Chuck C. Johnson was a guy who uncovered uh, some voting fraud issues down south, and then he became this kind of alt-right guy, and he helped uh, his platform helped fund people like Robert Spencer and what have you. So seeing him go, not a biggie. Milo Yiannopoulos, you know him. He's the uh, homosexual... uh, a tech guru who was a former writer for Breitbart. And he got banned. He's always showing up to the college campuses. And even though some of what he says falls in line with what I believe, he still has this other side to him that makes me go, ah, no, you're not quite there. And, you know, Alex Jones, 
enough said about that guy. But when they came after Jesse Kelly, see, Jesse Kelly does have a fair amount of influence online. He's a pretty witty guy. I follow him for those reasons. And it's interesting because he is an Iraq war veteran. He's also somebody who uh, uh, you know, ran for Congress. And, I, and he ended up getting a radio show here recently. I think his influence was kind of scaring those at Twitter. So they had to nip it in the bud and get rid of him. And, you know, that's you have to think, when is it going to be your turn? I mean, again, Twitter isn't the real world. The reason why it's important, though, it is the battlefield of ideas. It's why I came to the platform back in 2009. News is broke there. News is made there. Presidents issue statements there first. Things come to the light of day, you know, and that's the problem. You can go off and build your other platform and you can say, oh, well, you know, there's other platforms out there. Well, you can go off to to gab and be in an echo chamber and yell in the dark. You can go off to Facebook and basically argue with your kindergarten friends that you reconnected with and old flames that you ran into and and people you go to church with and just yell at them and divide those relationships that you bridged. Just divide those again by spouting off politics. Or you can do like I did back in 2008 and get on Twitter because of the fact that you wanted to yell directly at the people who were giving you these god-awful policies. This is the whole reason why I joined. I got tired of yelling at friends that I went to school with and basically just keeping a rift over nothing when I can yell directly at the people responsible for it. But Twitter is coming after us conservatives, and it's not it, the reason why that's important is you have to realize the tech industry is focusing on conservatives. And they're going to do that with AI. So what we have to realize is where we thought it was cool that all these, look at all these cool products and gadgets and Alexa and Google Home and all this great stuff coming out. This is great. Well, guess what? They've already decided to weaponize it against freedom-loving individuals, small government-loving individuals like ourselves, right out the gate. And now they've jumped the shark because they've not only banned people that value liberty and freedom and self-reliance and free markets. And, you know, if you want to be a status government control freak, well, then you'll never be banned. You'll be able to say the vilest things. But they've even taken it even a step further beyond Jesse Kelly. They went after a staunch feminist, Megan Murphy. She stated that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And she was banned for this. And the Federalists covered this. Um, this is from the Federalist. Despite its CEO telling Congress the contrary a few months ago, Twitter has amped up its pattern of politically one-sided application of its terms of service. Last week, social media giant permanently banned Megan Murphy, a writer based in British Columbia, for critiquing transgender ideology online. The platform repeatedly suspended her account for, th- for it basically a number of times, and ultimately banned her last week, saying that she, you know, such behavior violated its rules against hateful contact, co- uh, conduct and what have you. So this lady who, I mean, on Twitter, Murphy regularly engages in debates about sex, gender and women's studies. In fact, she holds a master's degree in the field from Simon Fraser University. She's not a troll. She's educated. She's an opinionated person. And she was seeking to use her Twitter uh, platform to develop her understanding of the topics and to gauge others in debates. She said, in August, I was locked out of my Twitter account for the first time. 
I was told that I violated Twitter's rules against hateful conduct and that I had to delete four tweets in order to gain my access to my account again. In this case, the tweets uh, question the name Lisa Crute, who is a, a trans-identified male. So she is being slammed under the terms of service, and they've updated their terms of service to include what's called dead naming. This is the concept that uh, you basically insulted a trans person by referring to them by the name at which they were given at their birth, which is most likely the gender to which they formally identified with, even though chromosomes never change and you're not going to change your sex. But there was somebody who put a thread up online who is a transsexual or a transgendered individual and gave it some thoughtful nuance. I'll read a little bit of it. It says, on its face, denaming or dead naming is merely mentioning the christened name of a person as given by their parents if that person has subsequently changed their name as part of their uh, declaring a different gender identity. It's considered rude to approach a trans person who would refer, prefer to be uh, known as Caitlin and say to them, hey, Bruce, recently, last five years, this was coined as dead naming. With Twitter choosing to punish or ban the mention of a christened name, Dead naming has now emerged as a highly privileged, extremely broad privacy right, which removes others' rights to speak about the past. From the first time I heard the, um, the name dead naming, I've criticized it for promoting the idea that changing one's name or pronouns is a form of death. It isn't. Changing your name introduces a new chapter. It doesn't destroy the book. There is not a unified position in the trans community on dead naming. For Twitter, to add it and its prohibited speech restrictions means that Twitter has taken a specific ideological stance and is choosing to ban a wide swath of speech. A ban on dead naming is categorically identical to a ban on heresy. If Twitter bans dead naming, there's no distance from here to banning sacrilegious speech. Dead naming is a term from the most modern of theological movements. In practice, Twitter's dead naming policy will be a boon to anyone who wants to hide their past, particularly sex offenders and other violent offenders. This policy strips a victim's ability to name their abuser. Twitter has been cracking down on all types of challenging speech. Challenging speech is, by its nature, offensive because it attacks the ideas and beliefs that one party sincerely holds, which another party passionately disagrees. Twitter is not a platform for discussing ideas. This new change to terms and conditions proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt and you're dead dead on right i mean that's part of what's going on with this whole thing twitter has decided to take a stand on one side and in fact paul sperry wrote about how it's ceos you know the um they gave all to the democrat party he said federal records reveal 80 percent of twitter's corporate PAC contributions in the 2018 election cycle have gone to Democrat candidates, none of whom are moderates. Liberal Democrats also got top dollar in 2016. You know, it, it basically talks about how uh, the Federal Elections Commission's records show that one Twitter CEO, for starters, has given exclusively to Democrat candidates, including the maximum donations allowed to both Clinton's and Obama's campaigns. In 2016, they gave 2700 to the Democrat candidate Kamala Harris of California. Jack Dorsey also only donates to Democrats. So the Twitter platform has basically focused on conservatives. They're funneling their money to the Democrat Party. They're eliminating any sort of resistance or influential individuals online. I've been shadow banned before because I've noticed the difference in change to my account. 
So be aware of that when you sign up. The liberals are not for free speech. Back in a second. This is Adrian Slade. So at least Twitter has reinstated Jesse Kelly's account after multiple congressmen seem to be up in arms with the Insta ban while Capitol Hill was looking at having them go back before them because basically they lied under oath saying, oh, we don't ban conservatives. Uh, yeah, you do. Yeah, people like Josh Hawley. He said, Twitter recently banned a Marine vet and conservative pundit Jesse Kelly without explanation. This follows Twitter's ban of Canadian feminist Megan Murphy for her speech. Jack told Congress, Twitter doesn't target political speech. Is that true? He said, the new Congress needs to investigate and find out. Twitter is exempt from liability as a publisher because it is allegedly a forum for true diversity of political discourse. That does not appear to be accurate. And then the great Ben Sass, who decides he wants to chime in. And Sass, we're going to get to you in a little bit on a whole other issue. I never know what to make of this guy. But here's what he said. Jesse Kelly can't stand me. And I think his tribal war scalping stuff is stupid and wrong. But that doesn't matter much compared to the bigger picture here. The trend of deplatforming and shutting down speech is a bad precedent for our free speech society. So I agree with you there, Sass. But they did decide to ban Saul Montez uh, Bradley, who was an outspoken critic of the left, which I actually spoke to quite a few times. Really nice guy. I don't know why they banned him. But I'm not going to make this show about Twitter because, you know, it's not such a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But there are some on the platform who crowdsource information to bypass the media's control on information. And that is why I think it's an important topic because we use Twitter to circumvent and navigate around the narrative that the media has by everybody providing information and factual accounts that we are able to put it all together and see a big picture. And when they're taking conservatives out like they're doing for simply just saying little things that aren't even offensive, it's obvious that they don't want that war to be lost on them. They want to be able to control the information that's being said. And we're not even going to hear about things that, you know, happened over the weekend, such as the case with another gas attack in Syria. Did you hear about it? (laughs) I know the U.S. didn't respond with launching multiple ICBMs at a military airstrip in Syria. No, that never happened. They couldn't even blame Assad on this one. And that's because it was the actual terrorists that initiated the chemical attack. Oh, the the terrorists don't have chemicals? Yeah, we've proven that that narrative was a lie on multiple shows in the past, especially with the one that happened in April with Duma. Might have been late March, early April, where they blamed it on Assad. And you know what's even funny about this latest gas attack? The white helmets didn't even show up. That great rescuing organization didn't even show up. I mean, how does that happen? When the gas attack happened in Duma, they blamed it strictly on Assad. They didn't even question the terror group Al-Islam, whether or not they were responsible, which we found out that they probably were. 
And this happened a few years back in Aleppo. They blamed Assad again, only later to have Amnesty International put out a report that pinned the responsibility on the Syrian rebels, which that blanket term needs to be broken down completely because the Syrian rebels consist of some moderates that were former military members that don't like Assad, but it also includes large factions of Al-Qaeda. They're known as al-Nusra in Syria. And then there's al-Islam and, and some of these other factions. And the reason why some of these moderate former military people are siding with them is because al-Nusra is ruthless and can be more of a muscle and a power for them to gain what they want to gain. They all have a certain goal. The problem is, as soon as that goal's reached, al-Nusra is going to turn on the moderates. So, and the, the thing is, they're also, the moderate, I mean, the, uh, the al-Nusra faction is also embedding itself within the white helmets. So they gas the place, then they go in and they go as, to save people, and they walk out with, you know, whatever they can pil pilfer and plunder, and they also execute the people because that's part of their goal. They want complete control over that nation. So what's funny is when you think about that Syrian war, the civil war, I did a whole two-part show on this a couple of years back because we were sitting around talking about it one day. Obama's still in office. We did, there wasn't even a presidential election on the horizon. And we were like, what is the deal with Syria? Why are we even there? What, what is even going on? And how did ISIS become such a phenomenon? It really comes down to a couple of things. When I started researching, the first thing they said was, it was a civil war started by a group of kids who wrote some sort of revolutionary thing on a wall because they saw the video of the Tunisian fruit cart vendor who was protesting in Tunisia who lit himself on fire right outside of the, uh, you know, the, the Capitol building in Tunisia in protest because some people... A female police officer with the with the brute force police in Tunisia decided to steal some of his fruit, and he thought it was oppressive. Sounds like kind of a bit of a stretch there, but they said that he, those kids saw that video and decided to write you know some things up on the wall, and that led to the authorities to catch them, take them uh, hostage, arrest them, take them hostage for a couple of weeks, torture them, and then release them back to their family, to which the family decided to protest, and they were an influential family, so they were able to just get, gather people in the streets, and then next thing you know, Assad's gassing them. Not really what happened there, but that's the narrative that they built. And then also, <laughs> they blamed it on climate change. Yeah, for some reason, we're going to go ahead and repopulate the world. We're going to empty the citizens of Syria into the EU because of climate change. We're going to empty all of Latin America up into North America, bypassing Mexico because of climate change. It's funny how that gets thrown in there. But it wasn't. Basically, this was something in the works for a long time. It boils down to a natural gas pipeline proposal. There was two of them. <laughs> there was one that the West wanted. And that, more importantly, was uh, Germany... France, UK. I mean, do you ever wonder why every time there's a gas attack and they blame it on Assad, who's the first to respond? Macron. You got the Brits, Theresa May. You've got all of these people that are responding, but we don't do that to any other country. 
You know, we're not doing that in, in parts of Africa. You know, we're not doing that with Boko Haram. But we are doing it with Syria for some reason. And really, it goes back to even before George W. Bush. And there was an interview that I played on one of those shows with Assad. And this was a CNN interview from 2005 that they were talking about how the, the West was looking to uh, remove Assad from power. And an interview directly with Assad. It was unbelievable. And that's the thing is they want to, and I'm not an Assad apologist. The guy sucks. He's horrible. But we have to look at the fact that that's their leader. I don't know how he got there. I mean, he succeeded his father. But the thing that we have to realize is we're not doing some humanitarian effort to save that nation. We're doing it for other reasons. And the, the way to remove him is to paint him to be Hassan, uh, Hussein, Saddam Hussein 2.0. Say that he's using chemical weapons on his people all the time. Get everybody up in arms. Get some compassion behind it. And what they're doing is they're using Al-Qaeda and they're using the white helmets, more importantly, because they can spin it and make it look like it's this notable rescue effort to basically attack the Syrian army and eventually topple Assad. And that's where we're going with this whole thing, because if they topple Assad, they get the ability to run those pipelines. And what ends up happening, what they don't realize is the cluster, you know what, that would ensue of factions looking to take over that place. Al-Nusra, Al-Qaeda, um, Al-Islam. You know, you've got all these factions that will suddenly step in and it will be the ugliest civil war. It will top what we saw in Iraq. I mean, it will be ugly. And I want to get in a little bit more to the details of what happened on Saturday back on the other side of the break. This is Adrian Slade. So we were talking about Syria. We were talking about the fact that this is a long-term plan that was in the works for years. I mean, this isn't something that just erupted overnight. When Obama was in office, he was able to kind of help facilitate that. And what he did was he put his red line out there, which he never adhered to. He chest pumped and, you know, thumped his chest and screamed about how we're going to we're going to get rid of Assad, blah, blah, blah. And then what happens? He gives it over to Russia because the other the other proposal, the other pipeline proposal, there was one with a lot of EU nations and Qatar um, and, and just there was one that was against what Assad wanted. But the one that Assad wanted was the Iranian pipeline. That would include Russia. And now Turkey has switched and joined in, even though Turkey and Iran don't really see eye to eye, even though Turkey and Russia have had their issues. And the reason that they did that is because Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, he wants a caliphate. Iran, they want a caliphate. There's competing caliphate interest. <laughs> and Russia just wants the resources. And so what they've done over time is... Russia has attacked the, uh, the rebels who the West was using. When I say the West, I'm not talking about just America. I'm talking about the EU, uh, nations like France, Germany, uh, you know, UK. They were backing these free Syrian army, which consists largely of al-Nusra, which is al-Qaeda. 
and the Russians were beating them back and giving the giving the neighborhoods that they reclaimed back over to Assad. And what was happening while that was happening was Iran was going into Syria and setting up military installations all over the place. They basically have gotten it to the point where they've covered the majority of Syria. And, and actually, Assad's not real happy about that right now, from what I understand. But why did they do that? Because, is, uh, because Iran saw it as a possible way to place pressure on Israel. Is that why Obama allowed this to go down? Because Obama doesn't really like Israel either. And it's funny because we have these responses that happen even after Obama's out and while Trump is in. The last gas attack in Duma, we're bombing, you know, bombing military airstrips under Trump's authority. And if you notice, it's always a bipartisan cheering of, uh, of attacking Assad. You will see Hillary Clinton. You will see, well, not anymore, John McCain. You will see Marco Rubio. You will see John Kerry. They're all singing the same praises. They all have the same goals. Why is that? Why is it that that foreign policy never changes regardless of who comes into power as far as presidency goes? I don't know. Maybe it's because there's a military industrial complex in the background making things happen whether we like it or not. So it's, it's amazing to me because one of the things when I was doing the research, I couldn't reconcile how would we be backing those who flew airplanes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon? How would we back those individuals? You know, we backed them in 79 in Afghanistan against the Russians, and then they turn around and attack us, you know, Bosnia, Serbia, what have you, and then they go through and decide to take out Kobar Towers. Uh, they decide they're going to fly planes into buildings, and all of a sudden we're back to supporting them again? I actually found an article, I want to say it was in 2007, that was the date of it, that was talking about what would happen if we took on Syria and how Al-Qaeda would be emboldened. And the military individual, I think it was Investors Business Daily, something like that, Business Insider. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's in the original show, uh, the two-part series that we did. But And you can find that, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, what have you. But basically, the gist of it was, if we keep Al-Qaeda busy over there... They're not going to have time to attack us over here. They're not going to have time to conspire and organize and what have you. That was the gist of it. And then what a better way to modify the idea than to bring in this rescue unit, the White Helmets. Well, what the White Helmets were consisting of was a good majority of al-Nusra fighters. And you can see there's pictures online that if you research it far enough, you can see multiple pictures. And it wasn't just the White Helmets. There was other groups. There was a, a Stand Up for Syria or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. But there was some other NGO, non-governmental organizations that were rescue, uh, rescue affiliates. You know, they were there for the recovery and, and response to those who are killed and, or even or injured in, in attacks. And they always showed up right on time, minutes after. But you can see video footage of them run, uh, hanging out with these Al-Qaeda terrorists. And then as soon as the Al-Qaeda terrorists 
conduct their car bomb explosion or what have you. The white helmets who are standing right next to them, hanging out, jump into action. You can see photos online where there's a doctor in scrubs. And next thing you know, you look back to three years earlier on his Facebook page. He's got a picture of him holding an RPG on his shoulder. It's amazing. And then what happens? This British company, Purpose LLC, they're the ones that decided to make this award-winning documentary on Netflix about the White Helmets. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't build a better PR campaign. I mean, you've got a organization. It also had ties in New York, but they did it through, there was like a, like a British New York connection, and they decided that they were going to make a documentary about the White Helmets, give it awards, and it's on Netflix, you know, the woke platform that Obama now has an affiliation with, that Susan Rice is also on the, uh, the board of directors now. So you've got that going on, and they were using the White Helmets to aid and abet the Free Syrian Army, which is basically a terrorist organization, to topple Assad. And so let's look back to what happened in, um, you know, in Duma back in April. There was hostages that were freed by the Syrian Arab Army, which is Assad's crew, and they were originally kidnapped in the city of Adra back in December 11th of 2013 by al-Nusra. And Turkey had been aiding al-Nusra and supp supplying them with poisonous gas. Turkey even reorganized ISIS together with al-Qaeda under the Free Syrian Army as one entity. Iran made deals with them to allow them safe passage through their country in order to allow them to attack Syria. Which, you know, the, regardless of Muslim affiliations, Shia, Sunni, they don't get along. But you know what? They were fine. That is what angered ISIS back in 2017, which caused them to lash out against Iran. Al-Islam, which stands for Army of Islam, another terror faction, attacked the town of Adra, which was led with help from the Qatari-funded al-Nusra. So they ended up having this deal that they set up, what they call the Sochi deal. In Idlib, Idlib is up near the northwestern part of Syria, near Aleppo. And this, organi this, this deal that they set after Duma, Duma gets a gas attack. They decide, hey, we got we to gotta stop the attack. The Free Syrian, Syrian Army is fighting up against the Syrian Arab Army. And that's when it came down to a standstill. They made a deal and said, hey, look, you can be on our police force. We will, we will give you safe haven, or you can go back to the rebel-controlled area, but you have to leave all your weapons behind. And so what do they do? They bust them out of um, Duma over to Idlib. And Idlib is where the Syrian, re or the, the, uh, the Syrian rebels control. I mean, it's amazing, because the stories out of Idlib are horrific. About I mean, it's basically another ISIS enclave. And so, basically, Erdogan, Putin, they met at the Black Sea, um, city of Sochi. They agreed on a roadmap to clear Idlib of former al-Qaeda affiliate and al-Islam members. Um, without the need for military intervention was what they were trying to do. They wanted to build a demilitarized zone between Idlib and the government forces in that area by October 15th. But that all changed when they met Putin, Erdogan, and Rouhani from Iran, when they all met back in September, Erdogan's proposal for a ceasefire was rejected by Vladimir Putin. 
He said, the fact that there is no representatives of the armed opposition here around this table is still showing that there are issues that need to be held. And more still, there are no representatives of al-Nusra or Islamic State or the Syrian army allowed at the negotiating table. I think in general, the Turkish president is right. It would be good, but I can't speak for them. And even more so, I can't talk for the terrorists from al-Nusra or IS that will stop shooting or stop using drones with bombs. So what they did was um, al-Islam or actually al-Nusra over there in Idlib decided to fire uh, tons of chemical weapons into Aleppo. And, of course, this caused the reaction by Russia. Russia stepped in, started military intervention, and you get what you get. But oddly enough, this time, there was no involvement with the White Helmets. There was no involvement with with blaming it on Assad. So it makes me wonder where this is all going. I know Israel has done uh, pinprick strikes throughout Syria, because of the fact that is, uh, Iran is all littered throughout Syria. Little military bases, or they're using Syrian bases, and, and they're using that to attack Israel. And so the news media finds a way to vilify Israel by saying, look, Israel is attacking Syria. They're, they're basically invading a nation, a neighboring nation, but they're not. Israel is actually trying to defend themselves against these little military installations that Iran has littered throughout the country. So I don't know where we go from here with Syria because it's a giant mess. It still is. I say, let them work it out. I say, you know, we're going to, there's going to have to be some sort of presence, unfortunately, because we've allowed Russia to get as far into Syria as they did. But especially with what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, and the Ukraine deciding they're going to have to call, you know, per, uh, call for martial law after the Russians took over some of their ships and said, oh, well, they were in the war waters. They were in our waters and basically invaded their ships. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just telling you, don't believe the hype that it's all Assad being this genocidal maniac, even though he's horrible. The news media is only given light to gas attacks in Syria when they can blame it on Assad. And when they can't, it does. It goes the way of this past weekend where you don't even hear a thing. And that is why the stress to have a presence on social media platforms like Twitter is important because you wouldn't know about any of this had you been banned from Twitter back in a moment. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. Now switching gears, we need to get into the issue of climate change. Yeah, the bureaucracy that remains, the swamp that cannot be drained, gave us the National Climate Assessment. This is from the New York Times. A major scientific report issued by 13 federal agencies on Friday presents the starkest warnings to date of the consequences of climate change for the United States, predicting that if significant steps are not taken to rein in global warming, the damage will knock as much as 10% off the size of the American economy by the century's end. 
Mr. Trump has taken aggressive steps to allow more planet warming pollution from vehicle tailpipes and power plant smokestacks and has vowed to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement, under which nearly every country in the world pledged to cut carbon emissions. In fact, they're trying to push a carbon tax through the House right now. It's, it's unbelievable. But anyways, back to the article. Just this week, he mocked the science of climate change because of a cold snap in the Northeast, tweeting, whatever happened to global warming? <laughs> but in direct language, the 1,656-page assessment lays out the devastating effects of a climate change on the economy, on health, and the environment, including record wildfires in California, crop failures in the Midwest, and crumbling infrastructure in the South. Going forward, American exports and supply chains could be disrupted. Agricultural uh, yields could fall to 1980s levels by mid-century, and fire season could spread to the Southeast, the report says. Yeah. So thank you for that report, bureaucracy. And Trump has actually stood up against it. He's actually, um, you know, called it out. But, you know, it's it's really amazing to me when you think about it. And just a side note, every article that I've read about this study has a picture of the California wildfires somewhere in the piece. They're not fear mongering or anything, are they? So everything can be blamed for climate change. The Arab Springs explosion, the Syrian civil war, the existence of radical Islamic terrorism. That can be blamed on climate change and jobs, apparently. The forced migration from Central America to America, you know, so that they can come in and aid and abet in the climate's destruction by changing their residency to the most evil and damaging nation in the world to the environment. You know, the United States, apparently, not China, who had to build the world's largest air purifier because it looks like L.A. in the 1970s, completely thick, smog-filled clouds and citizens walking around with SARS mask on to tolerate it. Go look it up. I'm serious. It's a giant air purifier. It's unbelievable. And every politician thinks it's going to culminate in about 12 years. Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, all of the leftist communists all around the same time think that it's going to happen within 12 years. Oddly enough, that's also the same time that Theresa May's Brexit deal with the UK um, is cr crafted around. It's, it would mandate that the UK adhere to the EU uh, laws until 2030. Hmm, 2030. The UN has a plan, an agenda, that would need to be implemented by that date. Hmm, what is it again? Agenda 2030, that's right. Just in time for the UK to figure out that it's going to be roped up into this giant UN globalization by that day. That's what I'm assuming. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, we're moving in that direction. And really, if it's going to be a global government, it's going to look communist, but it's not going to be Russia communist. It's going to be China communist. Let me, I mean, that's a prediction. The economy is going to look like a faux capitalism economy that the government runs everything, but just, Puts uh, owns stake in the company, the com you know, the companies out there trying to produce all of these items. It's going to have credit monitoring. It's going to have social credit monitoring. It's going to monitor all of its citizens. It's going to microchip you to make it, you know, easier for your, you know, banks and and purchasing power. I <laughs> think I'm lying. That's what it looks like. It's all heading to. But the weatherman can't even tell us what's going to happen next week. Is it going to snow? Is it going to be 75 degrees? 
But somehow they've all drilled down on this 2030 date with extreme confidence. And what's interesting to me is one of the conservative stalwarts, Ben Sass, as I said before, I have an issue with. <laughs> he said, this is what he said about climate change. I think it's clear that the climate is changing. I think reasonable people can differ about how much and how rapidly, but I think it's clear that it's changing and it's clear that humans are a contributing factor. I think the real question, though, becomes, what do you do about it? Because you can't legislate or regulate your way into the past. We need to innovate our way into the future. So he's bought into the myth. And what's really interesting is the plan that some of these people have. What is their great plan to combat this? They want to dim the sun, like a Simpsons episode. Scientists are proposing an ingenious but as yet unproven way to tackle climate change, spraying sun-dimming chemicals into the Earth's atmosphere. The research by a scientist at Harvard and Yale universities published in a journal, Environmental Research Letters, proposes using a technique known as stratospheric aerosol injection which they say could cut the rate of global warming in half. The technique would involve spraying large amounts of sulfite particles into the Earth's lower atmosphere at altitudes as about as high as 12 miles. But they did say that this is unproven. It's purely hypothetical. So they're going to try to dim out the sun, you know? And I thought aerosols were bad. I thought aerosols were responsible for that giant hole in the ozone over the Antarctica back in the 80s. I think that scare of the aerosols and the, and the slow demand because of the scare killed the 80s glam metal and cock rock scenes. Aquanet sales plummeted. Everyone began listening to per Pearl Jam and Nirvana and wearing flannels and growing their hair out. But the sun is actually proactively taking measures to combat earthly climate change via self-minimization. This is actually from the Space Weather Archive, the chill of the solar minimum. Now, remember, we just landed a rover on Mars are they saying that the Mars rover is responsible for climate change on Mars? Were the emissions melting the ice caps? Or would it be the sun? The sun is entering one of its deepest solar minima of the space age. Sunspots have been absent for most of 2018, and the sun's ultraviolet output has sharply dropped. New research shows that the Earth's upper atmosphere is responding. Quote, we're seeing a cooling trend, says Martin Melizniak of NASA's Langley Research Center. High above the Earth's surface, near the edge of space, our atmosphere is losing heat energy. If current trends continue, it could soon set a space age for record cold. Imagine that Eureka! <laughs> These results come from the Sabre instrument on board NASA's Time Satellite. Sabre monitors infrared emissions from carbon dioxide to nitric oxide, two substances that play a key role in the energy balance of air 100 to 300 kilometers above our planet's surface. By measuring the infrared glow of these molecules, Sabre can assess the thermal state of gas at the very top of the atmosphere, a layer researchers call the thermosphere. The thermosphere always cools off during solar minimum. It's one of the most important ways the solar cycle affects our planet, explains Melizniak. Um, when the thermosphere cools, it shrinks, literally decreasing the radius of the Earth's atmosphere. This shrink is, uh, shrinkage decreases aerodynamic drag on satellites in low Earth orbit, extending their lifetimes. That's the good news. The bad news is that it also delays the natural decay of space junk, resulting in a more cluttered environment around the Earth. To keep track of what's happening in the thermosphere, Melizniak and colleagues recently introduced Thermosphere Climate Index, 
a number expressed in watts that tells how much heat and molecules are dumping into space. During space minimum, TCI is high for hot. During the minimum, it's low for cold. Right now, it's very low indeed, says Melizniak. Sabre is currently measuring 33 billion watts of infrared power from NO. That's 10 times smaller than what we see during the more active phases of the solar cycle. So could it be that that big fiery ball in the sky going through its phases, going through its stages, losing its sunspots, resetting its polarization or its its magnetic field from what we heard about? Could all of that be responsible for the global warming? Or was it because you decided to drive an SUV around? I mean, maybe it isn't. (laughs) Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with humans. I mean, of course, there is global change. There is climate change, but that's the cycle of the planet. I mean, this isn't a scientific assessment, but have you seen old buildings where the grass has grown through the concrete? The earth will always win. (laughs) We're just here for a period of time. It was here before us. It'll be here after us. Whether or not we can adapt to it is based on our species. But really, it has nothing to do with whether we drive a car, whether we use oil. (laughs) I mean, until we get that through our heads, we're going to be stifling our economy because that's the whole goal of it. Because you can't bring everyone else up to the level of a giant. You have to bring the level of the giant down to everyone else. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to us every weekend on Mojo Five O, the new platform for libertarian, conservatarian, conservative talk. Also, check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart, Spotify, and various other podcast platforms. Get the free Roku channel in your streaming store. Also, you can donate patreon.com slash Adrian Slade Show, $2 a month or whichever amount you wish. You can also check out the blog, adriansladeshow.com. We'll see you guys next time.